Revelation chapter 6. We'll be reading verses 1 through 8. Revelation chapter 6 and verse 1. And I saw when the Lamb opened one of the seals. And I heard, as it were, the noise of thunder. One of the four beasts saying, Come and see. And I saw, and behold, a white horse. He that sat on him had a bow, and a crown was given unto him. And he went forth conquering and to conquer. And when he had opened the second seal, I heard the second beast say, Come and see. And there went out another horse that was red, and power was given to him that sat thereon to take peace from the earth, and that they should kill one another. And there was given unto him a great sword. And when he had opened the third seal, I heard the third beast say, Come and see. And I beheld, and lo, a black horse, and he that sat on him had a pair of balances in his hand. And I heard a voice in the midst of the four beasts say, A measure of wheat for a penny, three measures of barley for a penny. And see, thou hurt not the oil and the wine. When he had opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth beast say, Come and see. And I looked, and behold, a pale horse. And his name that sat on him was Death, and hell followed with him. And power was given unto them over the fourth part of the earth to kill with sword and with hunger and with death and with the beasts of the earth. And look tonight at the great tribulation. Let's pray. Lord, as we come before you, we ask for wisdom and understanding. You said, blessed is he that readeth and keepeth the words of this prophecy. Lord, help us to understand it. Help us to ponder the ramifications of it. Lord, help us to learn from it that tonight might be profitable, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. We come now to a description of the time known as the Great Tribulation. First five chapters were kind of preparatory to that, introductory to that, and now we are in that time period. This is not a tribulation, but the tribulation. Sometimes you ask people how they're doing. Well, I've been going through some tribulation lately. Uh, particularly, I think, in generations gone by, that term was used more. But this is the tribulation. Uh, there never has been and never will be a period of time like it. From Revelation 6, 1 through Revelation 19, you have a description of the events of the tribulation. Revelation 4 and 5 have described a scene in heaven. Now we're going to have a description of what takes place on earth as directed from heaven, if you will. And by the way, this is the biggest or longest consecutive passage in all of Scripture dealing with a single primary subject. And God gives a, a great amount of uh, time to dealing with this seven-year period known as the tribulation. It's just seven years, but we have a great amount of space in the Bible dealing with this great tribulation. Psalm 2.5 refers to it as the time of God's wrathful vexation, if you will. It's a first specific reference in the Bible to this time of judgment. Jeremiah 30 verse 7 calls it Jacob's trouble. Jacob, of course, being another name for Israel. Daniel 9.27 describes it as the overspreading of abominations and desolations. Daniel 12.1 says it will be a time of trouble such as never was. Matthew 24, verse 15, 21, Jesus refers back to that passage in Daniel and calls it great tribulation. Mark 13.24 calls it that tribulation. Revelation 3.10 calls it a worldwide hour of temptation. Revelation 7.14 also calls it great tribulation. And so we're told over and over that this would be a horrendous time on earth, if you will. 
uh, and to give you an overview of the rest of Revelation from chapter 6 through the end of the book of Revelation. We see basically a chronological development as time is marching on through those seven years. Chapter 6 tells of the opening of the seals uh, and then chapter 7 interrupts to kind of add some more information to the story. Uh, Chapters 8 and 9 assume the order of events that are going forward with the blowing of the trumpets. Chapters 10 through 15 uh, again kind of give some extra information to the whole story. Uh, Chapter 16 resumes the chronological order of the book uh, with the pouring out of the vials or the bowls. And then you have some more information, special uh, material provided in chapter 17 and 18. And then chapter 19 concludes the chronological narrative uh, of the tribulation. But then there's some more details given about uh, the consummation of time, uh, the beginning of the millennial period. And then uh, chapters 20 through 22 or the end of the book, the end of the Bible, deal with some information about the New Jerusalem, the place where we will spend eternity with God forever. And so the opening of six of the seven seals is recorded in this chapter tonight, Revelation 6. As we saw last time, the kinsman redeemer, the only one in the entire universe that could step forward to uh, be qualified, that was qualified, willing to act to redeem the world. He's the executor of God's will, if you will. He, He takes the title deed of the world, that which was lost when man sinned. And he takes that title deed and he is worthy to open it, to pay the price, if you will. And that price had to be blood. We're not redeemed with silver and gold. We're redeemed but with the precious blood of Christ. And that redemption involved buying back, if you will, the world and everybody in it that's willing to turn to Christ and have his blood wash their sins away. We're dealing here in Revelation 6 now then with the opening of the seals. You remember in uh, chapter 5 and verse 2, he said, I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the book and to loose the seals thereof? And so a great dilemma uh, in, in heaven, if you will. No man in heaven nor in earth, neither under the earth, was able to open the book, neither to look thereon. And so John's beholding this scene. In verse 4 he says, I wept much. So John is overcome with grief, overcome with sorrow that seemingly the world will be lost. No one can open the seals. I wept much because no man was found worthy. No man was qualified uh, to open and to read the book, neither to look thereon. But the Lord Jesus Christ, of course, came into this world, uh, born of Mary, clothed with human flesh, became one of the descendants, if you will, of Adam. He became the kinsman redeemer. He was the one then that could step forward and pay the price, open the seals. One of the elders said unto me, weep not. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, hath prevailed to open the book and to loose the seven seals thereof. So the seals are opened one right after another. As far as in the narrative that is given to us in Revelation 6, we do not know the time lapse that is between each of them. It's not mentioned. Uh, The events take place somewhat rapidly. Uh, It would would appear that they're wrapped up by the time you get to the halfway point of the tribulation period. So they have to take place in, in, in three and a half years or less. And also as we go through it, you'll see that the first four seals deal primarily with the earth. They emphasize man's power of self-destruction. Some of the judgment 
comes through the means that man has devised and made. Uh, we're presently living in what nuclear age, the atomic age. We're living in a day in which man has uh, within his grasp the wherewithal to cause a lot of destruction, a lot of mayhem. As Ecclesiastes says, one sinner destroyeth much good. And we, have, we see that in our lifetime with all the weapons in many of the nations of the world stockpiling weapons, some of them openly, some of them secretly. Uh, they want to defend themselves. They want to be able to attack. And as revealed in the first four seals, God sometimes just lets man destroy himself. And we'll see some of that as we go through the book of Revelation. Then in the last three seals... Heaven kind of comes into view again, and uh, heaven will exercise its power upon the earth. Uh, all the tribulation takes place upon earth, but uh, the events will be directed primarily from heaven. And then you will see things such as earthquakes, which man could not generate. Uh, in the opening of the seals, the seventh seal contains the seven trumpets. And then the seventh trumpet, the seventh trumpet contains the seven vials. Therefore, the effects of the seventh seal, if you will, are felt all the way to the end of the tribulation period. In the Revelation 6, our text tonight, I saw when the Lamb opened one of the seals. And so now the Lamb has stepped forward, taken the book that's uh, been sealed with seven seals, and he steps forward and he opens one of the seals. And I heard, as it were, the noise of thunder, one of the four beasts saying, come and see. And so the, the noise of thunder, as it were, the noise of thunder, just a loud noise, uh, a loud explosion of noise that kind of portend that judgment's coming, destruction's coming, uh, something ominous is on the, on the horizon. And I saw and behold a white horse. And he that sat on him had a bow and a crown was given unto him. And he went forth conquering and to conquer. Now, much has been written and much has been speculated about who is this rider on the white horse. Is it the Lord? Is it the Antichrist? Is it someone else entirely? Now, some have insisted that it must be Christ since this rider is on a white horse. And they see parallels here with the passage in Revelation 19, since a white horse is mentioned in both places. In Revelation 19, I saw heaven open to behold a white horse. And he that sat upon him was called faithful and true, and in righteousness he doth judge and make war. His eyes were as a flame of fire, on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no man knew but he himself. He was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood. His name is called the Word of God. And the armies which were in heaven followed him upon white horses, clothed in fine linen, white and clean. Out of his mouth goeth a sharp sword, that with it he should smite the nations." And he shall rule them with a rod of iron, and he treadeth the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And he hath on his vesture and on his thigh a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Now there's no question about the identity of that rider on that white horse. Um, uh, that is the main reason that some identify uh, this rider here uh, as the Lord Jesus Christ, this rider in Revelation 6. But there are a number of, uh, I believe, worthy objections to that viewpoint. Even, even the armies of Christ will be on white horses. So a white horse is not Christ's exclusive domain in the tribulation period. Uh, Christ is the one opening the seals. He's the one opening up these judgments as it were. There's no logical uh, reason to believe that he opens the seal and then is the content of that seal. Also, you have four horsemen uh, together in association here. 
And uh, how would Christ figure in association with these other three? Who are they in relation to him? Uh, There's a distinct difference between who Christ is and these other writers. Uh, And the timing is all wrong for this to be Christ on the horse. If you want this to be a white charger of victory, then uh, you have to deal with the fact that there is no real victory won here. Not yet. This is out of place as far as the whole uh, order of events, what's going to happen in Revelation. There's no victory here. Also keep in mind that the book of Revelation is just that, is an unveiling, a revelation of Jesus Christ. And so when we see him, it is obvious. Uh, He is shown in all of his glory. He is clearly identified. And so in the rest of the book of Revelation, every time that Christ puts in an appearance, it, it's very clear. Uh, Revelation 1.8, I'm Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the ending, saith the Lord, which is and which was and which is to come, the Almighty. Revelation 1.11, saying, I'm Alpha and Omega, the first and the last. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. And he laid his right hand upon me, saying unto me, Fear not, I am the first and the last. I am he that liveth and was dead. Behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And have the keys of hell and of death. And so there's no question there. That's the Lord Jesus Christ. Revelation 4, 9. When those beasts give glory and honor and thanks to him that sat on the throne who liveth forever and ever, thou art worthy, O Lord, they say, to receive glory and honor and power. For thou hast created all things and for thy pleasure they are and were created. And so, and you see the same thing in chapter 5. You see the same thing. Chapter 19, when, when Christ is in view, it's very obvious that Christ is in view. And again, chapter 19, 16, he hath on his vesture, on his thigh a name written King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And so in all of the places in Revelation where the Lord puts in an appearance, it's pretty apparent, it's pretty evident. Uh, At this point we have the picture of the Lord in heaven uh, directing and orchestrating the events on earth. Uh, Angels and and others will come out and they will do His bidding, uh, His work on earth. And when uh, when He makes Himself known, then the scene changes. Also, it's important to notice that they, the writers in chapter 6 and chapter 19, they actually have different kinds of crowns. Revelation 19 and verse 11, I saw heaven open, behold a white horse, he that sat on him was called faithful and true, in righteousness he doth judge and make war, his eyes were as a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. Now that word crowns there in the Greek is the word diadema or diadem, diadem. Uh, that is the, the word for the crown of a reigning son, sovereign or monarch, the diadem uh, and diadema. And that's the Greek word you have there. But in Revelation 6, 2, uh, and I saw and behold a white horse and he that sat on him had a bow, a crown was given unto him and he went forth conquering and to conquer. And the Greek word is Stephanos, coming from a Greek word meaning uh, to twine or to wreath, signifying a crown or a wreath that a man could wear, like those that are given in the the games uh, and athletic uh, conflicts and contests. And so it wasn't the royal crown that royalty would wear. It was more like even what the Greeks might award at their Olympic games and so on. So you have two different kinds of crowns there. The writer in chapter 6 has in his hand not the sword of the Word of God, but a bow and evidently no arrows. And so he is going to conquer in an unorthodox fashion, if you will. And so who is this one that comes on a white horse? Matthew 24 says, For many shall come in my name, saying, I am Christ, and shall deceive many. 
And ye shall hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that ye be not troubled, for all these things must come to pass. But the end is not yet. For nations shall rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. And there shall be famines and pestilences and earthquakes in diverse places. All these are the beginnings of sorrows. And so he is an imitation of the rider on the white horse that will one day ultimately come. Uh, The rider on the white horse in chapter 19. Satan always has his counterfeits. He always has his imitations, his copies. Satan wanted to be like God, and he wanted to be God in Isaiah 14, and that's what he's used to dangle in front of people from, from Eve forward with various people. Uh, of course, the Mormons are a group that comes readily to mind, but even in much of the charismatic movement, that you can one day be God, and you can and all that kind of stuff, all that kind of nonsense. He's always dangled that in front of people. 2 Corinthians eleven thirteen. for such are false apostles deceitful workers transforming themselves into the apostles of Christ, making themselves appear to be like the apostles of Christ. And no marvel, for Satan himself is transformed into an angel of light. Therefore, it is no great thing if his ministers also be transformed as the ministers of righteousness, whose end shall be according to their works. And so there have always been the pretenders, the counterfeits. Acts chapter 8, verse 9, there was a certain man called Simon, which before time in the same city used sorcery and bewitched the people of Samaria, giving out that himself was some great one to whom they all gave heed from the least to the greatest, saying, this man is the great power of God. So he had seduced and fooled a number of people in this town. Second John 1, 7, many deceivers are entered into the world who confess not that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. This is a deceiver and an antichrist, and by that, it's not saying the Antichrist, but those that are deceivers, deceivers are Antichrist. They're against Christ. Uh, Matthew 24, 24, for there shall arise false Christs and false apostles and shall show great signs and wonders, insomuch that if it were possible, they shall deceive the very elect. Revelation 13, verse 11, I beheld another beast coming up out of the earth. He had two horns like a lamb, and he spake as a dragon. And he exerciseth all the power of the first beast before him, and causeth the earth and them that dwell therein to worship the first beast, whose deadly wound was healed. And he doeth great wonders, so that he maketh fire come down from heaven on the earth in the sight of men, and deceiveth them that dwell on the earth by the means of those miracles which he had power to do. In reference to the Antichrist, Paul wrote to the church at Thessalonica, he told them this, even him, in reference to him, even him whose coming is after the working of Satan, with all power and signs and lying wonders. The the Antichrist is going to be very impressive. He's going to be very personable. He's going to be the charismatic, and I don't mean that doctrinally, but just the charismatic personality that this world longs for. You're going to be very good at deception. And he'll have powers and signs and lying wonders to authenticate that he's the great power of God. And with all deceivableness of unrighteousness in them that perish because they receive not the love of the truth that they might be saved. And for this cause, God shall send them strong delusion that they should believe a lie, that they all might be damned who believe not the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Jesus would say this to the Jews that were standing there beside him one day, I am come in my Father's name, and ye receive me not. If another come in his own name, him ye will receive. They would be deceived by it. Daniel tells us that the Antichrist would obtain the kingdom, the kingdoms of the world, by flattery, 
Daniel says he shall come in peaceably. He tells us he shall work deceitfully. And then again he tells us he shall enter peaceably. And so the Antichrist will come in peaceably as the Savior of the world. He will establish himself as the world leader, the hope of all the earth. He'll be very successful and very persuasive in in aligning the nations and the peoples of the world in his camp. And by the way, the United Nations and the WCC and many other groups are, are paving the way for this. And increasingly you hear talk of a global community and no international boundaries and a UN peacekeeping force. Doesn't that sound nice? And brotherhood of man and global world courts and international community and a standardized uniform currency and expanded uh, trade agreements and international monetary system and fund and a new world order and one world alliance and all of those things that people think, well, if we could just achieve that... And then we can have unity and cohesiveness and we can stop these destructive wars and and all of that. So the Antichrist comes on the scene and people think he is coming to bring them into the millennium, so to speak. But he's actually coming, he's bringing the tribulation instead. And this writer in chapter 6 is evidently the devil's masterpiece of deception and counterfeit of all that is Christ. And he wins victory after victory even without, without having to use any weapons. Again, chapter 6, verse 2, or 1 and 2, I saw when the Lamb opened one of the seals, I heard as it were the noise of thunder, one of the four beasts saying, come and see. And I saw, and behold, a white horse, he that sat on him had a bow, and a crown was given unto him, and he went forth conquering and to conquer. And yet with no real weaponry, he's going to obtain the kingdom by flatteries. He's going to be a smooth talker. He's going to be very persuasive. He's going to inspire confidence in a world wearied by war, Wearied by all of the things that plague society, a man will step up, very self-assured, that will inspire confidence in those that listen to him. Very uh, personable, probably very handsome man, powerful man. And he's going to step forward. Uh, Israel will sign a covenant with him. He will actually reaffirm some of the covenants according to Daniel. And uh, they will be thinking that he's on their side. And he, for them will represent the long-awaited Messiah. Muslims also are looking for a messianic figure, and he will be all that they want him to be. Uh, You already have the ecumenical world church coalescing, coming together. Uh, They'll fall for his program. They'll join up with him. You're seeing many steps being put forward in that direction today. Uh, Increasingly, anybody that would not be a part of that alliance, part of that group, will be seen as divisive and hate mongers and on and on. So you see all those groups coming together. And so the leaders of the world will fall in line, and he will win victory after victory. And some will think that utopia is on the horizon. Uh, Even as calamities are happening around them, they're going to place their faith and their trust in this man. And the peace that he brings is superficial. It's contrived. It's tenuous. It's temporary. And one of the great desires of man is for peace. He wants peace, peace in our time, peace in our lifetime, uh, peace in his home. He wants peace in his city, in his nation, even while he's at war with God. There's no peace to the man that's at war with God. doesn't matter what else is going on in your life. If you're at war with God, there's no peace. Isaiah 57, the wicked are like the troubled sea when it cannot rest, whose waters cast up mire and dirt. There is no peace, saith my God, to the wicked. And of course, if you're saved tonight, you understand that before you were saved, you fell in that category. You were wicked. 
We're, we're wicked until God gives us His righteousness. And God says a wicked man cannot know peace. He cannot have peace. Uh, and so anybody that can come on the scene, men with troubled hearts, cities that are troubled, states that are troubled, nations that are troubled, any man that can come on the scene with a very calming, reassuring uh, influence uh, that can seemingly bring peace with him, uh, he will be very, very well received. And so down through history, the, those that have been uh, despots have started out preaching peace. They're going to bring peace. They're going to solve the problems. They're going to, they're going to be there to help the people that are, that are being uh, maligned and persecuted, the downtrodden. You study all the despots of history uh, that came from populist movements. Now, sometimes a person ascends to a throne by right of uh, heritage, that he's the son of the former king and so on. But anybody that ascends uh, through a populist movement is always coming in with solutions or reassurances, going to help the people stand up for the little guy and on and on and on and uh, restore national pride and so on. Just go back and study them. Uh, Hitler, as demonic as he was, he started out bringing hope to the masses a powerful speaker. They said he could just sway entire crowds of tens of thousands of people that were just hanging on his every word, believing everything he said. Uh, he came in as a, as a man that was going to restore German pride and, and lift the nation and lift the downtrodden. Of course, you know the end of the story. But, but tyrant after tyrant has, has done the same thing. And, and so the Antichrist is going to come in. He's going to be like all the tyrants in history on steroids, if you will. Uh, Jeremiah 6.13 says, For from the least of them, even unto the greatest of them, everyone is given to covetousness. From the prophet, even unto the priest, everyone dealeth falsely. They have healed also the hurt of the daughter of my people slightly, saying, Peace, peace, when there is no peace. Uh, oftentimes partial healing results in death. And they have healed the hurt, Jeremiah 8.11, of the daughter of my people slightly, saying, Peace, peace, when there is no peace. Were they ashamed when they had committed abomination? Nay, they were not at all ashamed. Neither could they blush. Therefore they shall fall among them that, that fall. In the time of their visitation they shall be cast down, saith the Lord. We looked for peace, but no good came. For a time of health, and behold, trouble. And so Jeremiah 23, thus saith the Lord of hosts, hearken not unto the words of the prophets that prophesy unto you. They make you vain. They speak a vision of their own heart, and not out of the mouth of the Lord. They say still unto them that despise me, the Lord has said, ye shall have peace. And they say unto every one that walketh after the imagination of his own heart, no evil shall come upon you. And so even in the tribulation period, you'll still have many churches functioning. Their pastors will still be here. They'll still be able to get up and preach messages. And as we see Bible churches uh, die out, we see apostasy on the increase more and more, that will be the overwhelming majority. And so after the rapture, some churches won't miss a beat. They won't, they won't have lost anybody, uh, certainly not their preacher. And they're going to get up and they're going to preach peace and they're going to preach unity and they're going to preach all the social gospel nonsense they're preaching now. And, and you will see the world start to really come together very rapidly because you will not have the Christians there to get in the way. You will not have the Holy Spirit working against all of that. And so the Antichrist is going to seize upon that great desire for peace that permeates the souls of men. He's going to take advantage of it. He's going to capitalize upon man's longing for peace. Uh, Daniel 8, 24, and his power shall be mighty, but not by his own power. He's going to be energized 
uh, by the devil himself. Uh, when, when, when Judas betrayed the Lord, the devil entered into him, it says. And by the way, that means the devil was at the Last Supper. The devil goes to church. Just don't forget that. The devil shows up. His power shall be mighty, but not by his own power. He shall destroy wonderfully and shall prosper and practice and shall destroy the mighty and the holy people through his policy. Also, he shall cause craft to prosper in his hand. He shall magnify himself in his heart and by peace shall destroy many. He shall also stand up against the prince of princes, but he shall be broken without hand. So by peace shall destroy many. 1 Thessalonians 5, but of the times and seasons, brethren, you have no need that I write unto you. For yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so cometh as a thief in the night. For when they shall say peace and safety, then sudden destruction cometh upon them. As travail upon a woman with child, they shall not escape. But ye, brethren, are not in darkness, that that day should overtake you as a thief. Ye are all the children of light and children of the day. We are not of the night nor of darkness. For God hath not appointed us to wrath, but to obtain salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ. Thank God for that. Daniel 8, 25 again, through his policy also he shall cause craft to prosper in his hand. Revelation 13, he causeth all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and bond, to receive a mark in their right hand or in their forehead, and that no man might buy or sell, save he that had the mark or the name of the beast or the number of his name. Here is wisdom. Let him that hath understanding count the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man. His number is 603 score and 6. He is going to be the one that causes people to prosper to eat, to work, or to not be able to do any of those things. He also goes, Daniel 8 goes on to say, He shall magnify himself in his heart. Revelation 13, 5, There was given unto him a mouth, speaking great things and blasphemies, and power was given unto him to continue forty and two months. And he opened his mouth in blasphemy against God, to blaspheme his name and his tabernacle and them that dwell in heaven. 2 Thessalonians 2.4, who opposeth and exalteth himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped so that he as God sitteth in the temple of God showing himself that he is God. So uh, he is going to demand worship from the world eventually. He's going to bring the world together, unify them, then demand their worship. Uh, Verse 25 of Daniel 8 again, by peace shall destroy many. Revelation 13.7, it was given unto him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. Power was given him over all kindreds and tongues and nations. And then again in verse 25, as you read along in Daniel, he shall also stand up against the prince of princes, but he shall be broken. Thank God for that. These have one mind, shall give their power and strength unto the beast. These shall make war with the lamb, and the lamb shall overcome them. For he is Lord of lords and King of kings, and they that are with him are called and chosen and faithful. What a blessing. For God hath put in their hearts to fulfill his will and to agree and give their kingdom unto the beast until the words of God shall be fulfilled. Well, in Revelation 6, we see a second horse come forth. Now there are those who believe that the rider is the same, time, same one each time, only the horse is different. Uh, we're not given the identity of the riders, even the first one. And while I believe it, it gives great indication to be the Antichrist, uh, because of the reasons we've looked at, it could be one of his emissaries or representatives. And when we come to the second, third, and fourth horses, the important thing becomes what they are bringing with them, what they are ushering in. Uh, their identity is, is secondary. Revelation 6.3, when he opened the second seal, I heard the second beast say, come and see. 
There went out another horse that was red. Power was given to him that sat thereon to take peace from the earth and that they should kill one another. And there was given unto him a great sword. And so the peace that is on the earth after the first horse has come, the first rider has come, this peace is very temporary. And then now the second rider quickly comes and takes it away. Uh, Red, of course, being the color of war, the color of blood. It will be quickly evident that whatever peace was obtained was superficial. He's going to use that temporary peace to consolidate, firmly entrench himself and his power base. But that peace is going to be fractured. Verses 5 and 6, when he'd opened the third seal, I heard the third beast say, come and see. And I beheld and lo, a black horse, and he that sat on him had a pair of balances in his hand. And I heard a voice in the midst of the four beasts say, A measure of wheat for a penny, three measures of barley for a penny. See thou hurt not the oil and the wine. And so you have the first horse comes, brings a temporary peace. The second horse comes, and there's going to be war. After the horse of war comes the horse of famine. That is what oftentimes follows after war in a nation, and the famine and the deprivation. And the balances in the hand of the rider represent the rationing, the, the limited supplies, the limited resources. Inflation will run rampant as food is scarce. A measure of wheat is about a quart. A penny represented a day's wages in the Bible. In New Testament times, a day's wages would usually buy about eight quarts of wheat or 24 quarts of barley. Uh, now you have a day's wages buying about one-eighth of what it used to buy. About one-eighth, a very small uh, fraction of what it used to be, what it used to buy. And then the last part of the verse is, See thou hurt not the oil and the wine, uh, preserve the olive yards and the vineyards. Um, there's been very speculation about what that might mean. Uh, some believe it means the wealthy are the, the least affected, uh, that they will be okay. It'll be the, the middle class, the lower class that will be uh, dramatically hurt, as is often the times the case in a famine. Uh, the wealthy get by, they find a way to survive. It's the poorer people that are hurt the worst. Barley especially was the food of the poor. The barley and the wheat representing the, the middle class and the, the, the poorer of the land. And perhaps the, the wealthy will, at this point, will, will do okay. Verse 7, when he'd opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth beast say, Come and see. And I looked, and behold, a pale horse, and his name that sat on him was death. And hell followed with him. Power was given unto them over the fourth part of the earth to kill with sword, and with hunger, and with death, and with the beasts of the earth. And so there will be widespread devastation with this fourth horse and rider by means of the sword, by means of hunger, by means of death, which uh, is believed to refer to pestilence, disease, things like that, which would follow after the famine. You have the peace, then you have the war, then you have the famine. After that, you have the pestilence and the, and the death, and then the beasts of the earth, the culmination of those that went before. Now, there's an interesting passage in Ezekiel uh, when God was talking about the sin of the nation and judgment that was to come. Ezekiel 14, the word of the Lord came again to me, saying, Son of man, when the land sinneth against me by trespassing grievously, then will I stretch out mine hand upon it. It will break the staff of the bread thereof, and will send famine upon it, will cut off man and beast from it. If I cause noisome beasts to pass through the land, and they spoil it so that it be desolate, or if I bring a sword upon that land, or if I send a pestilence into that land to pour out my fury upon it in blood to cut off from it man and beast. Though Noah, Daniel, and Job were in it, as I live, saith the Lord God, they shall deliver neither son nor daughter. They shall but deliver their own souls by their righteousness. A time of great apostasy and wickedness. In other 
the words, for thus saith the Lord God, how much more when I send my four sore judgments upon Jerusalem. The sword and the famine or hunger and the noisome beast and the pestilence to cut off from it man and beast. So there you have the same four things the horses represent, uh, or the, the fourth uh, horse represents that would come with the sword, would come with hunger or famine, uh, and then you have uh, the pestilence or death, you have the noisome beast. Yet behold, therein shall be left a remnant that shall be brought forth, both sons and daughters. Behold, they shall come forth unto you, ye shall see their way and their doings. Ye shall be comforted concerning the evil that I have brought upon Jerusalem, even concerning all that I have brought upon it. They shall comfort you when ye see their ways and their doings, and ye shall know that I have not done without cause all that I have done in it, saith the Lord. There was a reason why I've done all of that. And so here in Revelation, four horses come through, and destruction and devastation and death follows in their wake. You have one-fourth of the world's population killed when the pale horse comes through. That's a lot of people. Probably at that time, somewhere between one and a half and two billion people will be killed. Now, that's almost six times the population of the United States. Look at the verse in in Revelation 9, verse 15, the four angels were loosed, which were prepared for an hour and a day and a month and a year for to slay the third part of men. And the number of the army of the horsemen were 200,000,000. I heard the number of them. And thus I saw the horses in the vision, and them that sat on them, having breastplates of fire, and of jacinth and brimstone. And the heads of the horses were as the heads of lions, and out of their mouths issued fire, and smoke, and brimstone. By these three was the third part of men killed, by the fire, and by the smoke, and by the brimstone which issued out of their mouths. And so you now have literally half of the world has been wiped out. Half of the population of the world. If you take uh, one-fourth and then one-third, you get half. So the easiest way to figure, if you take the number 12, take one-fourth of that, that's three. So you take that off of there, uh, and then you have, you have nine left. Take one-third of that, you take it away three more, now you have six left, you have half. And so with these two judgments alone, you've, you've cut the population of the world in half. Two cataclysmic events, fully one-half of the world population is wiped out. Uh, everybody uh, is going to be grieving over lost loved ones. Uh, this is in addition to the other deaths that will be very widespread. Revelation 6, 4, there went out another horse that was red. Power was given to him that sat thereon to take peace from the earth, that they should kill one another. There was given unto him a great sword. Uh, so you have that. Plus you have, you have the martyrs. Uh, you have had the rapture right before the tribulation. And so with all of those factors, the population of the world, after all that has happened, could possibly be, say, maybe 2 billion, maybe even a lot less. It's somewhere approaching 8 billion today, but at the time of the rapture, you're going to have hundreds of millions of people that will be uh, removed from this earth. It's nowhere near what people, when they say, well, 2 billion people in the world are Christians, if only, if only. They're including everybody that, that isn't an atheist and isn't a Muslim. Um, they include the Roman Catholics, the Orthodox, all kinds of liberal denominations. If, if, they, if, if they carry a Bible, they're a Christian. Uh, there aren't two billion Christians in this world. But there, there would, 
hopefully be hundreds of millions. And so when those are removed, uh, the population of the earth come under uh, 7 billion, and then you're going to cut that in half, 3.5 billion. Then you can have all these other events uh, where people are killed, the martyrs that are killed. Uh, in chapter 8, verse 9, you have a third of the ships in the sea that are destroyed with all the people that are therein. Uh, in, in chapter 11, you have the two witnesses that can kill people by fire proceeding out of their mouth. They will kill people in that manner. Uh, you have when uh, the armies of the world march against Israel on Jerusalem. Uh, Ezekiel informs us that five-sixths of that army will be wiped out. And so you, you theoretically could have maybe even just a billion people in this world at the time. And there'd be carnage and death everywhere. And uh, take uh, years to, to bury everybody in the bones and cover it all over. And, uh, and so the world will look completely different. All the people that think the earth is overpopulated, it'll be vastly underpopulated in that day. And so, so no wonder Daniel 12.1 says, uh, there shall be a time of trouble such as never was, never was since there was a nation even to that same time. And Jeremiah 30, verse 7 says, Alas, for that day is great, so that none is like it. It is even the time of Jacob's trouble. Jesus would say, For then shall be great tribulation, such as was not since the beginning of the world, to this time, no, nor ever shall be. And except those days should be shortened, there should no flesh be saved. It's just going to be a, a massacre, bloodshed. And even when the armies march against Jerusalem, the, the Bible says the Lord will turn them one against another. And they'll be fighting with each other, even as they're going united by a common hatred of, of uh, the Jews. And yet there'll be destruction en route to that. And then, of course, at the end of the tribulation, the Lord will take care of all of that. But a vastly different world. Now, you might think that there's nothing you can do about that coming day of judgment and that time of tribulation. But really there is. And uh, number one, the first thing is to make sure that you're not going to be there. That's the most important thing. Make sure that you're not going to be there. Uh, be with those that the Lord is going to pull out of this world. And He's going to pull us out before the judgment falls. And, uh, you know, like the, the angel said to Lot, he said, I, I, I can't bring, judgment won't, won't come until you get out. That's a really bad paraphrase, but he said something like that. Until you come hither, <laughs> uh, judge, judgment wasn't going to fall. And God didn't send judgment on the world in Noah's day until he had an ark of safety for Noah and his family. And uh, as it was in the days of Noah, as it was in the days of Lot, so shall it be in the days of the coming of the Son of Man. And he's going to pull us out. Judgment will fall on those that don't know the Lord. So the first thing, the first thing you can do, make sure you're going to be one of those that's come up here, they're called to be with the Lord. And then secondly, do everything you can to help your family, your friends, your co-workers, your acquaintances, uh, to keep them from being there. That's where prophecy isn't just supposed to be a, a doctrinal thing where we can say, oh, I know this and I know that and I know some things about Revelation and I know what that represents. No, it's, it's to be more than that. It ought to challenge us that there's coming a day when we're gone and those that have rejected the gospel message, there's no hope for them anymore, according to 2 Thessalonians 2. And so it behooves you. You have lost relatives and plead with them. And I know you risk alienating them and making them mad, but, but maybe if you're pleading with tears in your eyes, they'll understand that you're not trying to just make them feel bad, but you care. Now bathe it in prayer. And neighbors and friends, acquaintances, that's, that's the best thing you can do to prepare for the tribulation period. 
You don't have to prepare for yourself. You don't need to stockpile food and water and ammo and build a safe bunker under your house. Um, the best way to prepare is to see how many people you can take with you and spare them from that great judgment when, when God's wrath shall, shall fall and, and who shall be able to stand? And the answer is nobody, nobody. And one day, eventually the Antichrist will be broken as is prophesied. But before that, there'll be an awful lot of devastation, a lot of destruction, a lot of bloodshed, a lot of grief. And we who have the truth will be lights in this dark world. And the darker the world gets, the more the, night, the, more the light is needed to drive back the darkness. Lord, we thank you for this passage. Lord, we dare not just make this an intellectual exercise. We, we need it to speak to our hearts. I pray that you take this message, even as we've looked at the destruction that is coming as we just enter into this study of the tribulation period. And Lord, already a lot of carnage, a lot of death, a lot of sorrow. Lord, I pray that you'd help us to catch even a glimpse of that, that we would not want any of our loved ones to go there. Lord, that we would be all that we can be by way of testimony, that we would manifest the fruit of the Spirit, that we would be gracious and kind and loving and burdened. Lord, I pray that you'd give opportunities to us, that we would seek out opportunities to be a witness, to share the gospel, to plead with men to turn. Lord, may we be challenged with that tonight, challenged with our sacred privilege and honor, but sacred responsibility to be a voice that would cry against those that are on their way to hell. Help us, Lord. Give us wisdom. Bless in this time of invitation, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.